invite you to take your copy of God's Word and open it again to Nehemiah, that Old Testament book that tells the story of what God's people did or what God did through His people as He brought them out of exile in Persia around 445 B.C. or so and back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple of His worship there and in Nehemiah specifically, the wall around the city. We know that Nehemiah is the story that's told there by the, uh, uh, predominantly by the, the man that the book is named after, Nehemiah. This is kind of a uh, large part of the, the book is his sort of personal memoirs. What we see there is not just people building a city, but we see is uh, God rebuilding a people, a people who had once been taken into exile, into a strange land to live as strangers there, to be uh, separated from the land of promise in order for God to revive their faithfulness and bring them back to uh, the city of Jerusalem, to the land of Judah, to be a faithful people. Uh, The rebuilding project, if you will, of Nehemiah is far less about the wall and far more about God's people. This week we come to the last chapter and the last sermon in this series in Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 13. I know you're disappointed to be leaving Nehemiah, but you'll get over it in time. (laughs) The good news is that Nehemiah is always in your Bible, so anytime you want to go back... And see God's faithfulness to his people again? Good news is, it'll be right there where you left it. When I was in seminary, I had a good friend who loved to play uh, video games, particularly a basketball video game, an NBA basketball video game on his Xbox. And uh, I was never good at it, but I liked to go and watch him play because he enjoyed playing. And and the funniest part of the video game was the commentary. Like, that this is how far video games have come, that they even record uh, commentators to give commentary on the video game that you're playing, on a fake game. But there was one commentator who would, every time that like a player would, uh, you know, uh, you would control your player to go and dunk the ball or something, and some sort of like trick dunk, because there's some key sequence you can do that make it do that. And, and he would go do like a 360 dunk or something, it would look awesome, but then he would totally miss the dunk because whoever's controlling uh, the player, usually me, didn't know what he was doing. And the ball would go flying off the rim, and the commentator would say, Million dollar move, 10 cent finish. (laughs) It's like the the sharpest jab to the soul of a young man just trying to play a video game. But the point there being, great start, awesome move, way to go. Ooh, you totally missed it. That's awful. A few weeks ago, we were uh, looking at Nehemiah, at at the people... Uh, there in Jerusalem, we saw in chapters 9 and in uh, chapter 10, <clears throat> excuse me, particularly, chapter 9, the people coming together after the wall has been built to confess their sin, to recognize how they have, how they have acted rebelliously against God and, and to begin repenting, walking in repentance before God again, to be that faithful people that God had purchased for himself. And in chapter 10, we have this wonderful covenant renewal ceremony where the people again, all together, renew for themselves uh, promises to keep God's law, to keep the, the, uh, the, the, the law which bound their relationship to God. And it's just this, this wonderful time of people committing to be God's people. Remember we read in Nehemiah chapter 10, uh, beginning in 
uh, verse 29, the, the renewal covenant. And we saw that all the people joined with their brothers, their nobles, to enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses the servant to observe and to do all the commandments of the Lord, our, uh, of the Lord, our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. They said, we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we'll not buy from them on the Sabbath or a holy day. And and we'll forego the crops of the seventh year and the exacting of every debt. And then they give a long list of all the things they're going to do to support the, the worship that took place in the temple of God in Jerusalem. And so in chapter 10, verse 39, they have this affirmation. We will not neglect the house of our God. The people coming together say, we are going to do well. We are going to act faithfully. Then chapter 13 happens. Sometime between the dedication of the wall... And chapter 13, Nehemiah, this leader of God's people who was, a, who was born a Jew, a Hebrew, but serving in the court of the Persian king Artaxerxes as cupbearer to the king, his, his leave of absence from Persia runs out. And so he has to go back to Persia to report back to the king. And during his absence, everything goes awry. And when Nehemiah returns from Persia in chapter, Nehemiah chapter 13, he finds that the people have disregarded every one of their covenant renewal commitments, not to give their sons or daughters to idolatrous peoples from around them, uh, to keep the Sabbath and not to forsake the temple. All of these covenant commitments have been disregarded in the time of Nehemiah's absence. So Nehemiah, this leader of God, fear, or leader, God's leader of God's people, fearing God's judgment upon the people and, and in righteous indignation over their covenant contraventions, Nehemiah brings reforms to each and every one of these covenant trespasses. And that's what we find in Nehemiah chapter 13. The main idea, the primary principle that comes to us in this chapter is this, that if we are to live as God's people, we must have God's help. If we are to live as God's people, we must have his help. As the disobedience of the Jews in Jerusalem to keep their covenants reveals our, our own tendencies to grow slack in our own pursuit of holiness, let us this morning resolve to look to Christ for help to enable our faithfulness. If we're to live as God's people, we must have his help. Would you stand with me as we honor God by reading his word, Nehemiah chapter 13. Nehemiah begins, On that day they read from the book of Moses and the hearing of the people, and it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now before this, Eliashib, the priest who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. After some time, I asked leave of the king, and I came to Jerusalem, and I discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, and I threw out all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. 
I also found that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled, to, had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials, and I said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together, and I set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Padiah of the Levites, and as their assistant, Hanan the son of Zakor, son of Mathaniah. For they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service." In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and I said to them, what is this evil that you are doing profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you're bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates so that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. And then all the merchants and the sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them, and I said to them, Why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they, did not, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them, and I cursed them, and I beat some of them, and I pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat, the Horonite. Therefore, I chased him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and the Levites, each in his work, and I provided for the wood offering at the appointed times and for the first, first fruits. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. If we are to live as God's people, we must have God's help. As we come to Nehemiah chapter 13, we first see, my intention this morning is going to walk through this chapter and then uh, give us one particular implication, one point of application for us as we go. First of all, in verses 1 through 3, we see a helpful reminder. 
The day that's mentioned here in chapter 13, on that day they read from the book of Moses, has a little bit of confusion surrounding it. Some scholars believe that the first three verses of chapter 13 should go with the end of chapter 12, that the day that they read the book of uh, uh, the law of Moses had to do with the dedication day of the, of the wall. But I agree with other scholars that just based on the context of how it appears here, that, that this day of reading the law belongs uh, on this day long after Nehemiah had been gone in Persia and then returned. As we said before, Nehemiah had left Jerusalem for some time after 12 years as governor to return to Persia in order to check back in with King Artaxerxes. And when he returns, he sees all of the mess going on that we just read about. But what happens on this day of his return as the word of the Lord, the book of the law is being read together, is something that they've done before. The people have gathered together to read the law of God publicly in chapter 8 and in chapter 9 also of Nehemiah. And when they did so, good things always happened. It led to repentance. It led to uh, a confession of sin and turning from those things, covenant commitments made to God. So we ought to expect that when the law of God is read again to see more good things happening again, right? Sort of. We're told here that they read from a portion of the law, particularly Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 3 through 5, that commanded God's people that no Ammonite or Moabite should be a part of the assembly of God's people because of how these groups treated the Israelites when they were entering into the land of Canaan under the leadership of Joshua about a thousand years before this time. One specific instance is remembered of a Moabite king who hired a pagan prophet named Balaam. He hired this pagan prophet Balaam to pronounce a curse from the gods upon Israel as they were encroaching into Canaan. But instead, Balaam was made by the Spirit of God only to bless Israel. Immediately, after reading God's law, one good thing happens. When the people read the word, they do what it says. They separate themselves from the unbelieving, unrepenting, still idolatrous peoples from the surrounding nations. This is a good thing. You'll remember that already in chapter 9, when all the people gathered to confess their sins to God after reading his word, that they separated themselves on that day of confession from those who worshipped other gods. So as to say, confession and repentance, confession of sin and, and repentance of those sins before Yahweh is only, is only worship uh, to be done by those who only worship Yahweh. So if you worship other gods, um, uh, you, you need to go away for a moment. What seems to have happened, though, in the intervening time since Nehemiah went back to Persia or went to Persia and then returned to Jerusalem from that great day of confession and repentance and covenant renewal is that the people had neglected what they had started to do. They needed reminding that their holiness as a people was not to be a seasonal holiness, not to be a periodic holiness, but to be a perpetual one, to be a people perpetually set apart for God's glory in the world. See this morning in the Jews of Nehemiah's day a pattern that is true in your heart and in my heart as well. That even as God has called us to be holy as he is holy, that in our own strength, and our own ability, we only ever slide into disobedience. We desperately need help and a regular reminder to be holy. Now God's people under the old covenant of the law had regular Reminders in the form of faithful people like Nehemiah and Ezra, the priest, and prophets who called the people to read the word of God and return to their covenant commitments. Friends, we who are God's new covenant people by faith in Jesus Christ have not only the word of God, but we have also the very spirit of God sent by the Father and the Son who lives in the hearts of Christians to remind us that we need his help to be holy. Jesus himself said in John chapter 16 that he would send a a helper, an advocate. 
who is the Holy Spirit. He says in John 16, 13, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. We need perpetual reminders of our need for God's help to be holy as he is holy. And by God's grace, we have help to be holy as he is holy in the very Holy Spirit, his own Holy Spirit that he gives to live in the hearts of those who trust him. Chapter 13 goes on, though, and in verses 4 through 14, we see Nehemiah coming in and cleansing the temple. The people read the law, they separate themselves from foreign idolaters, and then the fun stuff happens. It's not really fun. It's fun to read, but I'm glad I didn't live it. Nehemiah goes in next to cleanse the temple. As this passage goes on, the text shifts back to Nehemiah's personal memoirs again. He starts speaking in the first person again. And as he gets back into Jerusalem, one of the first things that he observes is that the priest, Eliashib, has cleared out a storeroom in the temple that's meant for holding all the supplies for the Levites and for the worship of God in the temple. And Eliashib has made that storeroom into an apartment for a foreigner. And friends, not just any foreigner, but Tobiah, previously known or previously called Tobiah the Ammonite servant, who for so many years earlier terrorized the people of Israel and threatened, to, and threatened them in order to keep them from building the wall. Now he's got an apartment in the temple. Nehemiah reminds us that this happened while he was away in Persia. So as to say, listen, if I were in Jerusalem, this would have never taken place over my dead body, people. But as soon as he comes back and he sees it, he is filled with a righteous indignation. Verse 8 says, I was very angry. That's like an understatement of the year, Nehemiah. So immediately he evicts Tobiah throws all of his junk out of the temple, onto the temple porch. This, this scene of, of Nehemiah coming in and, and cleansing the temple from improper worship and improper use looks a lot like and prefigures well, doesn't it, that scene that day in the life of Jesus when he entered the temple with a whip of cords and he drove out the money changers, those that were taking advantage of God's people as they were coming to worship, declaring that God's house of prayer for all the nations had been made into a den of robbers, The problem in Jerusalem in Nehemiah's day is that while Nehemiah was away, some of the people, even the priest Eliashib, had slid into the temptation to be well-liked by powerful outsiders like Tobiah, to be well-liked by powerful people who previously had proven themselves to be enemies. And in order to maintain good relations with them, Eliashib Eliashib makes compromises. These compromises were made to the holiness of God's temple. These compromises went further, though, than Eliashib's disobedience and Tobiah's apartment in the temple. In verses 10 through 14, we find that even though the people had covenanted in Nehemiah 10, verse 39, I read it earlier, they said, we will not neglect the house of God, that they had, in fact, neglected the house of God. The people had stopped bringing their tithes and firstfruits of worship uh, in worship of God and for the provision of the Levites in the temple. So the Levites had to leave the temple to go to their fields, to plow their fields, to make a living. Remember, they were supposed to live off of the offerings of the people because the Levites' work was temple work. They were there to facilitate the worship of the people. And so the people were to bring the first fruits of their 
produce to support the the Levites so they would have food to eat while they worked in the temple all day long. But the people had forgotten to bring their tithes, to bring their offerings into the storehouse. So the Levites have had to abandon their temple work to go do field work. The end result was that the proper worship of God in the temple had come to a virtual standstill. So Nehemiah's response then is to confront the officials, the leaders among the people, who allowed this to happen and restore to the Levites their places and the bringing of tithes to support the worship of the Lord. In this case of neglecting the house of God by, uh, by, by uh, intentionally not bringing tithes and offerings, and in the case of Tobiah's illegal apartment, the people have given up the ground that had previously been gained in preserving the right worship of God. Million-dollar move, ten-cent finish. They turned a house of prayer into a home for pagan enemies, and they selfishly had begun to keep for themselves what was meant to support the mission and the worship of God. And all at once, God's purpose among His people and in the world... Remember, His people are to be a, 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 a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. They are to be as a living beacon to the glory of God to the nations, and now they have neglected all that God has called them to do. All at once, God's purpose among his people is endangered as they begin to profane this place of worship. But Nehemiah sees the problem. He comes in. He cleanses the temple. He calls people back to faithfulness. Then in verses 15 through 22, we see Nehemiah restoring the Sabbath. The second way that the covenant renewal of the people from Nehemiah 10 is broken comes in these verses where Nehemiah finds that the Jews have stopped keeping Sabbath. Remember, they promised they would not forsake the house of the Lord their God in chapter 10. They also promised that they would keep the Sabbath. But here, as Nehemiah returns, he finds the city of Jerusalem full of foreign merchants and locals alike that are flooding in and out of the city on the Sabbath day, buying and selling and bringing in loads on a day that was meant for rest uh, in God's provision and worship. Remember, the Sabbath day is not to be kept for the purpose of, of of proving that the Jews were righteous before God. Remember, the Sabbath was a day to remember the kindness and the provision of God, that even as he brought them out of slavery in Egypt and into a land their own, that they, that they could rest in his continued provision week by week, month by month, year by year. Amen. It was a day for worshiping God for his sustenance, a day to remember that man does not live by bread alone or by the work of their hands to produce that bread, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That was the purpose of the Sabbath. And instead, the people are buying and selling, bringing in loads, trying to make a living on this day meant for rest and worship. So Nehemiah does what he did before. He confronts the nobles among the people who have allowed this to take place and who maybe have even encouraged encouraged this uh, uh, disobedience. And so he kicks all of the foreign merchants out of the city. He locks the gates behind them and says, don't come back in until the Sabbath is over. Now, some of these merchants think, well, what we'll do, we'll just slide right outside the gate. He'll close it. We'll just camp out. We'll wait there. Uh, maybe we'll catch some people that are like coming and going. Maybe we can do some business like through the, you know, the, the holes in the gate or, you know, slide money underneath or whatever. And then as soon as the gates are open again, we'll rush back in and we'll get our good spot in the market again. But Nehemiah is like, no, 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 y'all. It's not just the, the letter of the law that we're keeping. It's the spirit of the law. And the Sabbath is meant not just for, I mean, in Israel, not just for those people who are living in Jerusalem, but those who are living throughout the whole land. So no one's going to buy or sell even near this city. And so he says, y'all back off or I'll lay hands on you. 
It's Nehemiah threatening to forcibly remove them if they will not leave the wall and, uh, and rest themselves on that day. As we noted a few weeks ago, Jesus, by his death for sins and by his resurrection, brings to his people a better Sabbath. Not just a day of, a day of the week of rest and worship, but a spiritual Sabbath. Spiritual rest from the burden of sin. And the spiritual Sabbath that Jesus brings goes far beyond the purpose of a weekly Sabbath. And as such, Christians, we said, are not obligated by any law of God to keep a Sabbath. But there's a principle to observe here in Nehemiah's uh, restoration of the Sabbath that it's right, friends, to remind ourselves of God's kindness and provision and to do it rhythmically, periodically, habitually, regularly. It's right to, to, to be focused upon God's kindness and provision to us, to, to rest in His grace and to worship Him because of it and not to forsake so doing. Nehemiah cleanses the temple. He restores the Sabbath. And in verses 23 through 29, Nehemiah cleanses the people. The final problem that Nehemiah is confronted with in these, uh, nearing the end of, of this chapter is that many of the people of Jerusalem had intermarried with other people of other religions from the neighboring nations. One more time, recall the promise of the people, the covenant renewal of the people from chapter 10, verse 30, when they said that they explicitly would not do this. This is the first of their covenant renewals. We will not give our daughters to their sons, nor take their sons for our daughters. But Nehemiah is gone for a period of time, and the Jews go right back on to forming these commitments, these alliances with foreign idolatrous people. And it's gotten to a point when Nehemiah returns to Jerusalem that the children, the offspring of these unions, are beginning to lose their ability to speak and to read Hebrew, the language of Judah, which is the language of the worship of God. It's the language of God's Word, the Old Testament in which it was written. It's the language of, the, the, uh, of worship in the temple. And the children of these marriages are losing their ability to speak it. The problem is not just that the people have intermarried with idolaters, but now... Even if their children wanted to worship in the temple, they wouldn't be able to understand what was being said. We should say here that the problem that Nehemiah faces in Jerusalem that day is the same problem that Ezra faced in Ezra chapters 9 and 10. If you go back and read Ezra 9 and 10, you'll see the same problem. People intermarrying with uh, idolatrous foreigners. In Nehemiah's case, the problem of this intermarriage seems far less severe. It's not as far spread as it was in Ezra's day. The way that Ezra deals with this situation is far more severe than the way that Nehemiah does. But all the same, Nehemiah confronts this problem head on, and he confronts it severely with those who are complicit in it. He gathers the people, the men particularly, who have either married foreign wives or given their children to marry foreign people, and he shames them publicly. He pronounces a curse on them, which doesn't mean he's cussing them out. What it means is he's, he's reading the covenant curses of God's word from Deuteronomy, that, wherein God says, this is what happens if you disobey uh, th- this command and marry these foreign people. He also beats them, yo, and pulls out their hair. I can't say whether I can condone Nehemiah's action here. I don't know if it's sinful or not. I mean, the, the, the covenant curses, I get that. The beating is probably far less severe than stoning. And pulling out their hair does, does certainly give a, a visible form of shame. 
upon these men as they go about the town until their hair grows back. But all the same, he deals severely with a severe problem. We see one more deep problem, though, as well in the same vein. Yes, some of the people have married their children off to foreign women, idolatrous women, idolatrous people. But the problem is worse, is even the high priest, Eliashib, again, is complicit in the same issue. For Eliashib, the same Eliashib who allowed Tobiah the Ammonite to have an apartment in the temple, that same Eliashib has allowed his son to marry the daughter of Sanballat the Horonite. That name should sound familiar too. Sanballat the Horonite was comrade to Tobiah the Ammonite and the chief instigator of the antagonism against God's people as they're rebuilding the wall. So now Eliashib has aligned himself with, uh, through marriage to two of Judah's enemies. And he's given one of them an apartment and another one of them his son. Mercy. As we've noted before, the restriction against intermarriage with foreign, uh, uh, foreign idolaters is not about ethnic purity. It's not about ethnic purity, but it's about spiritual purity. If a Moabite or an Ammonite or an Ashdodite were to renounce their gods and make a commitment to Yahweh, the living God of Israel, he or she would be counted a member of Israel. Ruth, the Moabitess, made such a covenant to God and was counted among God's people. In the the grandmother to King David and great, great, great to however many number, grandmother of Jesus, the Messiah. Not marrying foreign outsiders, idolatrous outsiders, is not about ethnic purity, it's about religious purity. But when Sanballat marries the, or when when Sanballat's family is married into Eliashib's family, that's not what we have going on here. These aren't, and in the other cases, these aren't foreign people renouncing their gods to worship only Yahweh. Here, Nehemiah sees a very real threat against the spiritual purity of the people. These marriages, he knows, will lead to idolatry in very short order, and he's about to have none of it. Not on my watch, says Nehemiah. So there's this reminder in the beginning of the chapter from God's word to be separate, to be holy in a perpetual way, to declare and to demonstrate the holiness of God in the world, the glory of God in the world, to call other people to come and see the gracious God who forgives sins when people rely upon him in faith. Nehemiah comes in and he sees all of these ways that the people have broken the very covenants that they made just a few years earlier, and he cleanses the temple, he restores the Sabbath, he cleanses the people. And then we see what Nehemiah does uh, for himself, in himself. All these things are sort of outward. He's acting upon the people and bringing reforms among the people. But see the heart that it comes from. Verses 30 and 31 show us ultimately that Nehemiah depends on the Lord. Why is he doing what he's doing? Because he depends on the Lord. Why is, he, why is he brought to righteous indignation over the fact that the temple has been desecrated and the priesthood is in a hot mess and the Sabbath has been neglected? Because he depends on the Lord. As this passage closes, we get an internal look into Nehemiah, his, the, the, the man and his mission. And it's the same Nehemiah that we've seen from Nehemiah chapter 1. His character is unchanged throughout His mission in verse 30 comes in three phases. He says, I cleansed, I established, I provided. I cleansed them from the foreign things. I established the duties of the priests and Levites. I provided the wood offering at the appointed times for the first fruits 
His life's calling and his work among God's people is, is here. In pressing them to holiness. In establishing faithfulness. In providing for the glorifying worship of God. And remember, Nehemiah is not a priest or a scribe or a Levite. Nehemiah is a Jewish man who is made a eunuch to serve in the court of Artaxerxes. He's an average guy with a great gift from God to lead people and a heart of devotion that depends entirely upon God for all that he does. We see his dependence once more as the book of Nehemiah closes with a short sentence prayer. Remember me, O my God, for good. The last words of Nehemiah's personal memoirs. Remember me, God, for good. Of course, this is not the only prayer in Nehemiah. We've, we've seen in almost every place where, where Nehemiah is writing from his own personal memoirs that he is a man of prayer, constantly beseeching God, constantly interceding on, on behalf of the people for God's mercy. He prays several times, even in this final chapter. You probably saw them. In chapter 13, verse 14, he says, Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. He prays again in verse 22, remember this also in my favor, O God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. And then again in verse 29, remember them, O my God, because they've desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. What do these and the many other prayers of Nehemiah throughout this book, what do they indicate? Some may say, or some may see in Nehemiah's prayers, a sense of self-justification. There's a way that we can read his prayer wrongly. To interpret it as to be saying like, Hey God, don't forget all the good stuff that I did for you and all the stupid stuff that these knuckleheads couldn't keep themselves from doing. Some could, could read in it a self-justification. God, remember how much holier than these idiots that I was. But that would be to misread his prayer. What we see in Nehemiah's prayer... It's not self-reliance, but a holy dependence upon God in all things. Dependence upon God who knows all and who sees all, including every motivation and intent of the human heart. Relying upon God, depending upon God to judge justly in everything. When Nehemiah prays, remember me for my good. He is not praying, please God, don't forget my meritorious action. No, he's praying, my God, you know all and you see all. And I'm relying upon you in all things that you will know my heart, that you will keep your promises to those who love and trust you, that God, you will judge justly and righteously in all things. Look only upon my intention. You know, God, why I did this. Don't forsake me for my obedience. In this final chapter of Nehemiah, chapter that we could maybe subtitle, Million Dollar Move, Ten Cent Finish. Maybe we could subtitle it, What's Wrong With You People? Maybe we could subtitle it in the voice of Nehemiah, I'm gone for five minutes. In this final chapter of where we see these people who are once committed and now have failed and Nehemiah's restoration, there is one implication that bears upon all of us as we read this today. Friend, you must depend on God. You must depend on God. How many of us, like these Jews, have made verbal commitments and promises to God? Lord, I'll never drink again. 
God, I promise if you relieve me from this guilt, I'll never look at porn again. God, I'll never cheat on my husband again. God, I'll never steal again. I promise I won't. And only to find with just a short passage of time that we have all together and without much thought or consternation of spirit gone back on those very promises. It's easy for us to read Nehemiah 13 and look at all the failures of the Jews and say, what's wrong with you people? From a self-righteous perspective, it's easy to look at them and say, you numbskulls. Until we realize that, friends, we are them. We are them. For all of our good intention, for all of our desire to be better, for all of our hard work to discipline ourselves, we are incapable of stopping ourselves from sinning. We cannot depend on our own strength to be holy. We must depend on God. There is in here, friends, a difference between a verbal profession of faith or a verbal faith and a vital faith. On the one hand, we see a verbal faith demonstrated by these Jews in Jerusalem who when Nehemiah is in town and they've got that backstop against their corporate sinning, they're more than happy to say, we believe God and we're going to keep all the covenants. But as soon as Nehemiah goes away to check back in with the king of Persia, the people almost immediately forget all their promises. Or maybe worse, maybe they don't forget them at all, but they just have this attitude in their heart of, meh, whatever. Their faith is a merely verbal faith. A verbal faith is not the kind of uh, faith, it's not the kind of trust, it's not the kind of reliance upon God that actually enables obedience. Jesus does not call us to have a merely verbal faith. Yes, I believe in God. I believe that Jesus lived and died and was raised again. I'm going to live however I want to. He doesn't call us to have a verbal faith. He calls us to have a vital faith that is a lively and a life-giving faith, a a, a faith that is evident in the intimacy of relationship between us and God. A person with verbal faith, a merely verbal faith, may be able to outwardly, in all of their actions, keep the Sabbath, give to the work of the temple, not marry outsiders. A person of a merely verbal faith can do the actions that God has commanded his people to do. And friends, all of us are tempted to do this. All of us are tempted to, in our own efforts, keep the law, be holy. Here's the crazy thing about all that. In Jesus' own day, about 450 years after Nehemiah, there were people who did do this perfectly. There were people who knew the law and kept the letter of the law to a T. They were called the Pharisees. These people were experts in God's law. They kept all the rules. They were from all external perception, moral people. They tithed like they were supposed to. They didn't marry pagan peoples. They didn't give their sons in marriage to pagan women. They preserved the temple in Jerusalem. They were fastidious about their worship attendance in the temple. And Jesus called these Pharisees who knew the law and did all of it, he called them whitewashed tombs. Pretty on the outside, 
dead on the inside. It is possible to have a merely verbal faith, to say, I believe this, to have a mere self-justification, to prove your holiness to other people by all the holy things that you do, and still be dead inside. Let me say this differently in language that we in 21st century America and in Baptist churches may be more familiar with. You can walk down an aisle at the invitation at the end of a sermon, pray a prayer with the pastor, get dunked on a Sunday, and still not have a vital faith. You can show up to every evangelism training, every Sunday school class, every small group Bible study, every Sunday morning worship. You can sing all the songs. You can serve in the praise team. You could even teach a Sunday school class or volunteer in the children's ministry and still be dead inside. Because it doesn't matter what you do. On your own, you are only capable of sliding into sin. A verbal faith will not save. Dear friends, a vital faith will always save. A vital faith demonstrates real personal dependence, not upon your own ability to prove how moral and how good a church attender you are, but your dependence upon Jesus as your intercessor to stand before God in heaven and to say, this one is mine. This one is mine. Their sins have been paid for by me. This one belongs to me. This is a a sheep of my fold. I bought this one by my blood. It's to know Jesus that way. And not simply to say you believe things about him. No, 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 but to depend on him. This is the point of Nehemiah's life, his resolve. All throughout his life and the time he serves as governor in Jerusalem, It's the point of the kind of resolve that he's calling the people of Jerusalem to, that we cannot be the people of God apart from the help of God and apart from a deep love for God that is motivated by a true knowledge of God. God doesn't want just the profession of our lips. He wants the devotion of our hearts. And Nehemiah gets back in Nehemiah 13 after he's in Persia for a while. What he sees is that people have merely professed what they would do with their lips, but they've not actually been circumcised in their hearts. They've not had the law of, of God written upon their hearts to keep it out of love for God. You see, there are two ways for us to disobey God. There's the obvious one, where you know what God says and you just do the obvious. Or you just do the opposite. That's the obvious way of disobedience. But then there's the less obvious means of disobedience, of rebelling against God. And that is the one where we do all the things that God commands, thinking that these actions are what prove our worthiness to him. The Pharisees were guilty of this second kind of disobedience, doing all the things that God told them to do without a love for his God and a heart broken over a people burdened by their sin. That's a disobedience that will deceive you into thinking you're a good Christian because I've got my life together. What's wrong with all you people, right? We look at Nehemiah and what we see in this man is that Nehemiah is not a worthy leader because of his obedience, though he is obedient. But rather, Nehemiah is a worthy leader because he depends entirely upon God in all things. Nehemiah knows that the people will not have life in the land unless God sustains them. Dear friends, we know that we cannot have life of any sort 
unless God brings our souls from death to life to begin with. Nehemiah knows that the wall will not be completed unless God provides what is needed. And we know that we cannot be righteous unless God makes us so by clothing us in the righteousness of his Son. Nehemiah knows that the sins of the people's disobedience will not be overlooked unless God in his mercy relents from his wrath. And we know that punishment from our sin remains unless God pours out his wrath on another. See this morning in every way that Nehemiah's dependence upon God for all things is pointing us to the same God who provides all that we truly need. And Nehemiah, as God's chosen leader, points us to another leader, a better leader. Not any leader, but God's own son. Who God determined in eternity past to be the very provision for our sin. And the sinless shepherd to guide our souls to heavenly pastures and to living water. Nehemiah, this leader enraptured by love for God and for the holiness of God's people, highlights the far greater reality of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whose love for the Father led him to serve sinners by dying for them and by rising again so that they might be made holy through faith, through dependence upon him. Understand this this morning. God is not done forming his people. He's still building his people. He is building a people in the world of every tribe, nation, and tongue, every skin color and nationality, a people of deep resolve to be holy, to be separate, to be like his son, but also to be a people who are declared holy by their faith in Christ Jesus, not declared holy by their self-righteousness, but to be declared holy because of Christ's righteousness and to be transformed to be holy, to have holy thoughts, to have holy desires, to have God-honoring intentions in all that we do through our lives of dependence upon the God that we adore for all of His love and kindness to undeserving servants. To be God's people, we must depend upon God. If you leave Nehemiah with nothing else, leave with this. That if you're going to be God's people, you must know him deeply, know him truly, love him passionately. Be ready to give up everything for the sake of following Jesus, whose death on the cross and resurrection from the dead is the only means by which to be known by God. You won't get to the Father any other way. You won't have any other defense in God's holy court on that last day when you stand before him as just judge of all the cosmos. You won't have any other defense on that day. Either Christ acquits you or your own sins condemn you. Your self-righteousness will get you nowhere with God. You need the righteousness of Christ given to you. Cling this morning to the promise of 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, God made him, made Christ who knew no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might be, might become the righteousness of God. If you're going to be God's people, you must depend upon God. Turn in faith, live by faith in the Son of God, Jesus, who gave his life for you, to make you holy, to make you righteous and to transform you to be holy in all that you think and do.
First Baptist Church of West Albuquerque. We, we are devoted to being God's people and we'll not do it without his help. We'll do it by depending upon him. Pray with me.